Let's open our time in prayer here. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity now to look at your word. And we thank you that you are our king, that you are a perfect king, and that you rule and that you reign, and your rule and reign will know no end. And we rejoice in that, Lord. And so we ask, Father, that as you would reign over us, and you would rule within us, and you would lead us and guide us by your Spirit, that as we study now, Father, you would make clear to us the truths of Scripture, that we might know how to best apply them to one another's lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. We've been studying this this line of thinking on biblical counseling and taking time um, to understand how to better encourage one another and help one another apply God's Word to daily life. And we're going to begin to look a little more at the practical side of things. We've talked a lot about why we do it and the reasons for doing it. But looking more now, uh, beginning today, especially at the how of doing this. Look with me at Luke 14, verse 26 and 27. We're going to go to a couple passages this morning. This is one of them. Uh, This one would set the tone for us a bit. Because theoretically, or the, the theory of what we're promoting here in the sense of encouraging one another in the word, just on paper is an excellent idea. But when you put it to practical application, it really has some some difficult sides to it. So we want to count the cost. Let's look at verse 26 of Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, Chris is Christ speaking, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, yes and this would be the key, Even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We're going to talk this morning about incarnating Christ to others. And what we mean by that is making Christ visible to other people. But when we do that, it requires that we, if we're truly going to incarnate, we're truly going to show the true Christ through the way we live, it's going to require that we lay down our own lives for the sake of His. So it's going to probably have some suffering involved. It will probably have some difficulty involved. It will probably have some rejection involved. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. We've just come through a... By the time you get to 31, you've just had a a magnificent passage on um, the sovereignty of God over salvation, the sovereignty of God over all things, the desire that we might be conformed to the image of Christ there in verse 29. And we get to 31. So we've just magnified the sovereignty of God And then Paul tells us this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case he missed something, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So can our sin separate us from the love of God? No. For those who are saved, our sin cannot even separate us from the love of God. Can our sin darken our view of his love for us? Yes, it certainly can. But not even our sin can separate us from the love of God. Now, why, why, is, why did we go to this passage? Well, the main reason we go to this passage is to see the love of Christ for us. Because as we're seeking to love others... The love of Christ has got to be both the anchor that we hold to and it's got to be the motivating factor for loving others. Because if we're loving somebody else for ourselves, it's not Christ-like love. So we've got to look to the love of Christ to be both the anchor to our souls and the motivating source for personal ministry. But why is that needed? Well, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, the majority of the time we're thinking about the church in a very skewed way. Maybe even a wrong way. This is sort of some things I wrote down. This is how we sort of view some people in church. If those people with problems could go away, we could really get down to business around here. If that person would just stop sinning, I would really be able to minister to them. What potential that person has for gospel ministry with me if he could just stop struggling with that particular sin? That's sometimes the way it creeps in. That person... I really can't get down to real business of ministry with him because he's into a bunch of sin. And that would be viewing the church as if it's it's some well-oiled machine that's always running perfectly with perfectly machined parts and nothing's out of order and it just continually does its job. And that's not the way it is. The church is much more like a hospital with various stage of sickness. Every one of us have the cancer of sin. Now, we've all got the understanding and the hope and the joy that the great physician is going to one deal, one day heal forever perfectly, but not yet. He hasn't done that yet. So when I go into your room and you're part of the hospital, what do I see? Well, I, I see sin, just like if you come into my room at my part of the hospital. But if we're viewing it as if, well, we really can't, well, that, that's not supposed to be this way in the church. We're supposed to be able to go out and minister to all those people who need Jesus, and then we come back in here and everybody's just perfect. We're not going to rub up against sin. We're viewing it in a wrong way. And then we won't be able to show the love of Christ to one another first, which is where it needs to be first shown. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is certainly a passage we're all familiar with. A few pages over in your Bible there. And we've made note that the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is what Paul has been teaching on, admonishing the Corinthian, Corinthians of the, the fact that a mature person, a mature spiritual person is what we're supposed to be seeking to be. And a mature spiritual person has spiritual gifts. 
And Paul talks about what some of those gifts are. But he points out to the Corinthians that they were viewing the gifts as a sign of maturity. Excuse me. They were looking to their gifts to be a sign of maturity rather than seeking to be mature Christians and let the gifts flow from there. And they were getting some things messed up because they weren't showing the greatest spiritual gift, which is love. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And then he hits the, the gifts that the Corinthian church were getting a little out of place. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I think we would look and go, hey, we got somebody in this church who can move a mountain. We got a mature spiritual person. Paul says, no, not even then. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So it's not outward. Love isn't outward. It comes from within. And that's where Paul goes here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. And if you had read this passage to the Corinthian church, Paul would have basically been implying, and that's not what you're doing. You're not doing these things. And that's the way it is for us even now. Paul writes this chapter for us to help us understand if we're going to love one another, we've got to look to Christ to be the source of that love. Because if we just try to do it ourselves... We're all we're not going to do it. We're going to look to, hey, can that person that person's got this gift or that gift that that personality I like better. That person tends to struggle with sin less in this particular way. I have a likeness toward that. That's not love. That's looking to the outward, just like the Corinthian church was doing. But if we're truly to love one another, as we're called to do, in order to be able to minister the word to one another, we've got to look toward Christ because Christ did all of this perfectly. And he's the example for us. And he is what will give us the strength to do it. And also the motivating uh, aspect of ministering to one another. But it will also give us the anchor. When we fail in this love, we go back to his love and see that it, according to Romans 8, 31 through 39, it never ceases. It never ceases. If we see others through the lens of Christ's love for them, if we see others through the lens of Christ's love for them. So I'm looking at a person who has been, who is saved. I'm looking at them the way I'm seeking to look at them through the way Christ loves them. We realize Christ hasn't manifested his love for them or for me because I am good or that we're better than some or even if we're just okay. I'm not looking at myself or looking at you and saying, well, you know, Christ loved you because you're pretty good. Are you a little better than others? You're just, you're okay. But rather that he manifested his love to us when we weren't even close to being spiritually okay or even good. Seeing people through that lens provides for us hope for change in our lives and for their lives and in the process, patience and grace as he has had with us when we don't feel like ministering to them. 
I thought about this week, I made the comment to Lucy, Christians can be some of the most mean people in the world. They really can. You're hugging a Christian sometimes and you feel like you're hugging a porcupine more than you are at a teddy bear. And the harder you squeeze on that person, they just poke into you even more. And unfortunately, a lot of times we're the porcupine. But if we're going to Christ first to love them and seeing His example and gaining our strength through them and also having that be our encouragement for when it may not seem easy, then we don't take those things personally and we don't stop loving. Tripp, Paul David Tripp, here in his book, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands, calls viewing people through the lens of Christ's love, viewing people redemptively, viewing people as having been redeemed by Christ. It changes your attitude. It changes your posture toward them. It helps us to realize that helping people be happy is not as important as helping people be like Jesus. Christ hasn't come to simply change our emotions or personal situations. He's come to redeem a people to himself that the Father might gain great glory through his transformational work of our lives to his. So how do we see? How do we show people that redemptive love? Last few minutes here before we close for this morning. Let's look at four. We're going to look in the next couple of weeks at four different elements of a loving relationship with others. And we're just going to look at two this morning. We're going to look at number one, enter the person's world. And number two, incarnate or make visible the love of Christ. We've talked about both a little bit, but let's break it down even more. Number one, enter a person's world. If you want to enter a castle, you go through the gate. If you want to enter a house, you go through the door. If you're wanting to be respectable anyway, I guess you could go through the window. But we're talking about a way to enter a person's house in a way that's not rude. You're going to go through the entrances that are there. Well, the question would be, what's the interest to a person's life? And first of all, it's not the person. If you come up to a person or a person comes to you and says, boy, I've got this problem. The problem is not the entry there. The problem is not the gate. If we want to call it the entry gate, if we want to call that the way to get into the person's life, the gate, the problem is not the entry gate. The problem is not even the particular situation and the circumstance that they're in. And the problem is not even the person or the problem uh, in the relationship that they may be having. None of those things are the entry gate. Now, those are things that have great uh, weight in what's going on in the person's life, but the entry gate is how the person is experiencing or perceiving all of those things. So let me give you a, a, a personal story to help you understand. So when Chandler, many of you are around, when Chandler a couple of years ago had a problem with his knee, and we didn't know what it was. And so we went to different doctors and we got all the different test runs and the MRIs and the uh, x-rays and the ultrasounds and these different things trying to figure out what is going on with his knee. Well, if I had called you up before we knew what was going on and I had just come out of an ultrasound and the ultrasound technician is saying, it's not looking good. There's a ton of blood here. It looks like the body's trying to fight something. Everything points to this being cancer. So I'm calling you up saying, we're going to a specialist in Austin. He's a, he's a pediatric oncologist, specializes in children's cancer. I'm, you know, it's not, what am I telling you? I'm not telling you, what you need to hear is not cancer. It's not our potential of it. It's not oncologist. It's not x-ray or ultrasound or what they said. What's the entry gate out of that situation? None of the things are the situation. What's the entry gate? How am I doing? My fear about that. 
The fact that I could have a four or five-year-old who has cancer and could lose his leg. That's what I'm dealing with. Now, if you say, oh, that is so bad. Oh, I, great. I know that. Tell me something I don't know. But if you were able to say, how are you, how you dealing with that? Oh, um, well, you know, just it's kind of scary. You're starting to hear words that should help you understand what is the way to minister to me. And for that particular time, it would have been fear. Because the circumstance is bad, certainly. The problem is certainly there. You've got all these different things going on. But the way to minister to me is not to help me understand those things. It's to help me understand how I may be dealing with them in the wrong way. It's getting to the heart of the matter rather than just the external side of things. So when you're, when you're, when you're sitting there or that person is talking to you, what you're looking for is some particular clues to how they're dealing with the problem that they are coming to you with. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be guilt. It could be anxiety. It could be hopelessness. They just There's no hope here. Or aloneness or envy or discouragement or desires for vengeance. It could be all these different things, and you're looking to really hear what is it. So you're, looking, you're listening for some things. Here's what you may be listening to. You may be listening for emotional words such as, well, I'm just scared. Boy, I'm really upset with this situation. I'm angry. Boy, I just can't stop crying about this. Listening for interpretive words. This should not have happened. I guess I'm getting what I deserve. I wonder if if it's even worth it for me to keep going. Listen for self-talk. I'm such a failure. This always happens to me. I don't have what it takes to face this. Listen for God talk. I thought I was doing what God wanted, and look what happened. He simply doesn't hear my prayers. How could God let this happen to me? I've been reading my Bible. I'm loving the Lord. Why is this happening? And then through that, beginning to minister to the person themselves. You're listening for clues about that person. Then what do you do? Well, we're going to uh, look at four things very quickly. I'm just going to list them off. We don't have much time to get to them. As you are listening for clues and you you enter that person's life now, uh, you're speaking to them particularly about the the way they're dealing with it. What you're doing is you're, by speaking correctly through their entry gate, you're building some horizontal trust. Boy, this person really seems to understand what I'm going through here. He seems to get it. You're letting the person know that you've heard their struggle. You're also supplying vertical hope because you can't just kind of ruminate in that, you've got to turn their eyes to Jesus. And the Psalms are a great way to do this because you're helping them understand that God is there. He is sovereign over these things. He understands the struggle. He's not advocated advocated his throne here. He's on, he's on that throne and he's ruling and he's reigning and he's doing this with perfect control. And you want to help them see that. And the Psalms is a great way because of all the emotions that are depicted there in the Psalms. Third, you want to commit, you want to help them realize that you are committed to the process, especially if you're dealing with a person in sin, that is dealing with some sin. A lot of times we jump out of that person's life when we really need to stay in there and help them. Committing to the long haul to stand by them and continue to point them to the Lord. And sanctification is a process. And a lot of times fighting against sin can take a lot longer than we would desire to take. So three things. I mentioned four, but there's actually three. Three, you're building horizontal trust. You're communicating with that person. Number two, you're building vertical hope, and you're helping them understand that you're committed to the process. 
entering a person's life, entering a person's life. And the second one would be to incarnate the love of Christ. Second thing we're going to do to help show the love of Christ to them after we enter their life through proper questions and helping them understand uh, what they're going through and helping them to see what Christ is doing or what God is doing in the situation. We want to incarnate Christ to them. We're already doing that in some way, but we want to do it in an even greater way. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians uh, 3, and we're going to read 12 through 17, is an excellent passage on how to practically show the love of Christ to others. And look at this passage here. It's a almost a step-by-step process. So we're talking to believers here. They have the new self, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And as I read these, think about these are awfully near and dear to the heart of ministry to others. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So how do you put on love? It's all of those things in 12 and 13. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, everything, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you can see how the love, love for Christ anchors our ministry. That's all of... 14 through 17. That empowers us to be able to do 12 and 13. Because if the peace of Christ rules in our hearts and we're being thankful to him and the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we're empowered to do 12 and 13. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, putting on those things because of the natural outflow of that person who has the word of Christ dwelling in them richly. But when we're then being compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and bearing with one another in the love of Christ, if we have Christ first, the love of Christ first being the anchor of our souls, it's going to do something for us. Number one, I've got four quick things here. Number one, it's a protection for us. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or or you also may be tempted. So I'm dealing with a person who's struggling with anger. It's probably a matter of time as I'm seeking to incarnate the love of Christ to them, show them God's teaching upon this situation, that we come up against something that they don't like, and that anger is now turned toward me. How am I going to respond? Jay Adams says, It doesn't matter what others say or do. What's important is whether or not you respond biblically. Now, he's not saying that you can do whatever you want. He's saying... If that person responds to me in anger, that matters between them and God. But what matters more on my side of things is how am I going to respond to that anger? Am I going to respond back in unrighteous anger? It's a protection for us. It helps us to see, ooh, when that person responds incorrectly to me, I can't respond back that way because that's not how Christ responded. It causes us to be humble as we seek to show others Christ and realizing that we need Him. 
as much as they need him. And it also causes us to be humble. And if somebody responds to us wrongly and we respond wrongly back, it gives us the humility to make right those sinful responses, going to them and asking for forgiveness and repenting of our sin. So incarnating Christ to others is a protect is a protection for us because it first has to live within us. Number two, according to Colossians three twelve, it provides for us a living example, and it provides the the love of Christ provides for us a living example, and it provides that person a living example. They look at that person and they say, "Man, they have really been kind to me. They have really responded patiently with me." I see Christ in them. That gives me hope that one day I can do that as well. It offers a living example. It gives evidence of what the Lord can do. Number three. Number one, it's a protection. Number two, it offers a living example. Number three, it gives evidence of what the Lord can do. I didn't get there by my own strength. That's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And number four, it keeps Christ central. We never want somebody to look at us and go, man, I wish I could be like them. We want them to see Christ. And when we mess up, we go back and we do that because of Christ. And we continue to help help them to see Christ. And it also keeps Christ central in our own lives in the sense that we're ministering to them whether they respond correctly or not because Christ ministered to us when we didn't respond at all. And yet he drew us to himself. So some just some practical things, certainly not... Steps one, two, three, and four of how to uh, show the love of Christ to others in ministering to them. But we first got to see the love of Christ in our own lives. And then as we would enter that person's world, as we listen well, being good listeners and entering that person's world of whatever the difficulty they are in. And then seeking once we're in there to help point them to Christ and show them Christ and love upon them. We can trust that the Holy Spirit will do his work through prayer to change. That's what we're about. We're not about being happy. We're not about being um, feeling fulfilled or all these things. We're about being like Jesus. That's what He is wanting us to be about. Let's pray. Yes. Thought. So, part, part of this discussion is ministering to people. Yeah. Some are believers and some are non-believers. Right. So, when, when I visit with someone, after I kind of know where they are with Christ, if they're a believer, that's one road. Right. If they're a non-believer, it may be possibly another road. Right. But when I'm talking to most people, I have to, not in a judgmental sense, but from the sense of trying, asking the Lord to show me where they are in their walk. It helps me to understand you know, how to pursue this person. Right. Because as you know, if you say, when I just lost your dad, mm-hmm. and you say, well, you know, God has a perfect plan, sure. well, they could sure you know, bite your head off. Right. So you get an assessment of that before the Holy Spirit can move, in my opinion, and that way you can respond properly where they are with Christ. Mm-hmm. Because they may be just a baby, mm-hmm. or they may be a, you know, a long-time believer. Mm-hmm. That's where the... Compassion and kindness and humility and patience, all of these things come in. You're not just blasting into a person's life. You're seeking to not move in your own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
we um, come before you and we we so often fail, Father, to love as we have been called to. But you never fail to love us as you have committed to. And we find great hope and comfort in that, Lord. And we thank you for it. And we then ask simply that we would gain much more grace by the power of the Spirit to to love as you love. Because we want people to see how magnificent and great and never ending is that love for us. That has been given to us freely. So Lord, help us. Help us to be humble in the way we deal with people. But also, Father, help us to be intentional. We want people to see Christ. And in Christ alone is there power to save and power to change. So we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you for these passages in Colossians 3 and Romans 8. 1 Corinthians 13. Father, may we take these things to heart and help us, Lord, as we all have strengths and weaknesses in this area. Help us, Father, to to shore up those weak areas. Help us to see better where we can, by by the word, through prayer, through seeking to live for you by your spirit, Father, that we can Grow in those weak areas. Lord, help us never make excuses for not loving others. You had every excuse in the world to not love us. And yet, it did not move you one iota away from your love for us and your commitment to the Father's will. We thank you for Christ. Lord, we ask and pray now that our time of worship, our, the preaching of the word, prayer, uh, corporately here in a few minutes might be edifying to you and might be enriching to our souls. Lift us, Father. Lift, lift, up, lift us up. Lift our eyes that we might behold wondrous things. Lift our eyes, Father, that we might see you more, more clearly. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.